and welcome to the Wild Cornwall podcast. A podcast by the Cornwall Wildlife Trust. With me Tom and me Lucy. We started this series to mark the Trust's 60th anniversary, which we're celebrating throughout this year. Cornwall Wildlife Trust was founded in 1962 and is one of 46 wildlife trusts working across the UK. Our vision is to create the Cornwall where nature can thrive. Today we're going to be thinking and talking about National Marine Week which, as a marine apprentice, I'm really excited about. I bet you are. So actually, we're going to be hearing a little bit about the project later on, which Lucy is part of, which I'm really looking forward to. That's right. The Mounts Bay area was proudly chosen as a place Cornwall Wildlife Trust could carry out an exciting new youth and community project called the Your Shore Project. So we'll be interviewing you later about that, Lucy. But first, we're going to play you an interview, uh, which I did with our marine engagement officer, Matt Slater, who told me all about everything to do with marine life. Matt, welcome to the Wild Cornwall podcast. Hi. Thank you so much for uh, being interviewed. Um, can you just tell us what your job is for Cornwall Wildlife Trust? Yeah, I'm the, uh, one of the marine conservation officers here in our small marine team at Cornwall Wildlife Trust. And so what do you do all day? Well, I do, I do a whole range of different things. I'm really lucky that I, uh, I have a really varied job and I work on lots of different projects. And uh, so I'm out and about working a lot with volunteers, trying to skill them up and get them helping us recording marine wildlife on the shore, so rock pooling and also diving and snorkeling. And you know, all those things are just my passion. I absolutely love being out in the marine environment you know, surrounded by nature and, um, and sort of hopefully that rub, you know, that enthusiasm rubs off and it gets people started on a, an amazing journey. I mean, I've got some incredible volunteers who, who once they get interested and start learning, they get hooked and they just want to learn more. And that's, that's I get a kick out of that. It's great. Uh, and then I also work on our seafood guide project so Cornwall Good Seafood Guide which is a brilliant website if the listeners haven't seen it already uh, they need to check it out and it gives you um, up-to-date information on seafood sustainability so that you know wherever you are you know in Cornwall you can um, make sure you're eating seafood that is as sustainable as possible. So, so what's, yeah. what's the best part of your job what what day ahead um, do you have when you wake up in the morning you think can't wait to go and do that I absolutely love leading our expeditions with, with our divers where we go out and we explore sort of uncharted territory. Mm. And, I, and I guess, you know, that is um, something that I've, I've always loved, the feeling of exploring. And, and yeah, and the fact is we never know what we're going to find when we're rock pooling or diving or snorkeling. Yeah. It really, yeah, that's the thing that really gives me a buzz. <laughs> and, and did you always want to do this when you were five years old? Was this your ambition? Yeah, it's a bit, it sounds corny, doesn't it? A bit boring to say, but actually I, I think um, I'm very lucky that from an early age I kind of had a good idea of what I wanted to, to get out of life and I've been obsessed with wildlife since I was a boy. I think my first word was fish. Is it? <laughs> and my parents um, kind of encouraged it as well. Uh, I had a little, um, I, I was actually a member of the Fox Club so that oh, yeah. was the junior yeah, yeah. branch of the Wildlife Trust. And I remember going on bird watching trips and pond dipping trips. And I had my own little wildlife club that my mates were all called the Magpie Club. And we used to have a clubhouse and we all had like membership cards. Brilliant. <laughs> and we would record our wildlife encounters <laughs> on a, in a little uh, A4 um, book, paper book sort of thing. And 
Um, yeah, it sort of shows you what sort of a kid I was. I also had a massive skull collection in my Did you? Yeah. Yeah, in my bedroom, which mum wasn't that fond of, but I had like you know a whole range of different species. I had um, a, a load of pets at home. Mm. You know, we used to keep keep um, all kinds of different different domestic animals. But yeah, I also had a, an aquarium. So my dad actually okay. helped helped me build an aquarium, and we used to go down. Swampal Beach and collect specimens, you know, put them in the aquarium and study them and put them back in the sea after a few weeks or whatever, a few days. Yeah. So you really are so in your ideal job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally. Brilliant. So this this episode is all about celebrating National Marine Week. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, National Marine Week's been going for, oh, crikey, about 20 years, I would say now. And it's, it's, it's um, organised by wildlife trusts all over the country. And in Cornwall, it's a really big thing for us. And um, we're really lucky that we've got this brilliant network of local marine groups in Cornwall. And, you know, for the last few years, we've been working together, organising events all over Cornwall that um, will allow people to come along and experience Cornish marine wildlife. You know, and there's lots of different types of events. There's snorkeling, there's rock pooling, there's beach cleans, there's clifftop watches, looking for dolphins, seals, etc., and birds. So yeah, there's kind of something for everybody. And like I said, they're all around the coastline of Cornwall, which is brilliant. We've really tried to spread it as, you know, get as many opportunities as possible this year. And um, yeah, please, you know, come along, get involved. And do you find that you see people getting engaged with it as you, as you talk to them and run events? Absolutely, yeah. This is what they're for, they're public engagement events, yeah. And we, through these events, you know, we meet large numbers of people every year and that's, you know, we, we, we really hope it makes a difference. Mm. And, and, you know, um, that's all you can do really, isn't it? You know, you're trying, yeah. to, trying to get people started on this journey. Like I said to you earlier, some of them become amazing volunteers. Some of them just hopefully go away with a bit more of an understanding and, and a respect for the sea. Yeah. So let's talk about the sea then. I'm aware that, you know, we're not in a great place globally in terms of our oceans. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What are the, what are the problems facing the sea um, in 2022? Yeah, I mean there are multiple problems, I and mean, I suppose the human race is probably the biggest, the biggest problem because ever since we've um, we've existed, really humans have been excellent at exploiting wildlife on land and particularly in the sea. And you know, there's been a long history of over exploitation. You know, certainly, um, yeah, it, it, it is. A massive problem globally and we've seen overfishing in our waters too in the past on top of that we've currently got the uh, climate emergency which is a really worrying for marine biologists as much as it is for terrestrial biologists I mean the the ocean is constantly changing anyway and, and species come and go but at the moment we're seeing warm water species really really doing well in our waters at the expense of colder water species and generally things are moving polewards and you know there's all these massive question marks about as to what that really means and you know it might mean that there's opportunities for fishermen in the short term but in the long term <laughs> does it is it all rosy and pro it probably isn't it, so it's um it's a big concern yeah so why is it different to conservation work on land for example 
Yeah, on land, we, we're in a fortunate position in Cornwall that we can actually go out and buy <laughs> bits of land and look after them. And I, I'm quite jealous of my terrestrial counterparts who have these nature reserves that they can sort of lavish their attention on. It's a lot harder in our marine team because we don't, we don't have any sizable marine um, nature reserves. We do have a couple, which is great. We've got Lou Island, yeah. where we have the, the shore there and you know, a, very, a, a small amount of marine habitat, which is great. Mm. And um, in the Fowl, we've got the Fowl Ruin Nature Reserve, which is all into tidal um, mud banks. So they get covered at high tide and exposed at low tide. So we have got some marine nature reserves. So you reserve. can do some work in those places. Yeah, but that's yeah. tiny. <laughs> and actually, for, for real marine conservation, you need to, we know now that we need to manage larger areas as, you know, as large as possible. And these areas need to be joined up. And within those areas, we need to make sure that we're really allowing wildlife to recover. And sadly, we haven't ever really managed that in, in, in Great Britain. We've, we've got actually, we've got a few um, offshore territories. So in the Indian Ocean, we've got a very large nature reserve around the Chagos Archipelago. Um, but we've not managed to do that in the UK coastal waters. And in fact, we've got no idea what our seas would look like if we actually properly managed them and protected them because for years we've been extracting and extracting constantly from our seas. And I think they've got great potential. And I think, um, you know, certainly there's examples all around the world of places that where you, where you are, you know, you do restrict fishing uh, and other activities. Um, you do find that wildlife just thrives and rebounds incredibly rapidly and it it actually adds to the productivity of the ocean so much so that you find that in many other countries fishermen are really in support of these protected areas and they appreciate their value because they're now catching far better um, you know far easier um, just outside there these protected areas but the protected areas have to be sizable and the problem is it's quite hard for for politicians to uh, to do that uh, because obviously there's going to be opposition and um, you know uh, our political system makes it very hard doesn't it because we have a change of turnover rapidly and, and no one really wants no one's really thinking long term are they and this, you know this is this makes it very challenging we we have seen improvements since i've worked at the trust so i joined in 2012 and we've now got a network of marine conservation zones which we didn't have and you know we're grateful for that however the majority of those haven't really changed what's happening in the sea. They're, they are nice you know, lines around areas on maps. So uh, why, and, and why not? What's, were, what's were, not happened that, that They were designated you know, to protect certain habitats and species. And you know, they're quite often they were drawn around areas where there's a, a rare species. Um, but that species is there because there isn't any threat to that species yeah you know what i mean so they've drawn yeah. these lines around them and, and now conveniently they don't actually have to do anything to protect that species so um, a good example would be i'd say the pink sea fan anemone on the manacles reef which is um, a very rare species but there's no trawling going on on the manacles because it's a rocky area so they haven't had to actually do much management and um, so therefore that line around that area hasn't actually achieved a lot and okay. you know being a bit pessimistic and cynical sounding we actually need to create some protected areas where we do allow you know where we do alleviate pressure and allow wildlife to come back rather than just doing nice lines around things that are already kind of Protect, well, protected anyway, protected yeah. Physically, naturally. Um, what would be the way of doing that? Have you got a sense of what we we could do to begin to achieve that? Yeah, um, 
That's that's a good question. It's it is controversial and it is difficult. You have to work with stakeholders, obviously working with with um, industries like fishing, but at the same time you have to follow scientific advice and listen listen to scientific advice. And you know other countries I think have perhaps got it a bit better than us. You know they might have, um, for example, in Australia they created a lot of marine protected areas and then had uh, conversations and debate after they decided where these areas should be, where the scientists had said they would have the best effect. And kind of, I think that approach kind of, kind of seemed to be more effective, although they are fortunate in Australia having a smaller population and a much bigger coast. Mm. So it is, it is challenging. Um, also, um, also, going forwards, we've got a big pressure on space in our seas. And, you know, there's, there's multiple industries involved. It isn't just the fishing industry. We're going to see renewable energy taking up space we, we need renewable energy to tackle climate change and so it's naturally gonna gonna happen and we've seen offshore wind in the North Sea but we're going to see offshore wind off Cornwall soon you know we've also got uh, we found out that um, the seabed is um, being leased out for lithium extraction so that's another thing that could be on the horizon so there's going to be increasing pressure on the seabed and what we'd like to see is is it being you know, this spatial management being done really sensibly. So it not only allows these things to happen, but also um, strengthens conservation objectives. And, you know, if you are going to be using a large area for, say, wind farms, you know, if they were sited in areas where a reduction in fishing pressure would actually help ecosystems and fish, fish stocks, and it'd be sensible if, if protected areas and say things like wind farming could be combined, you know. So I think there needs to be a lot of joined up thinking going on, mm-hmm. going into future um, management of our seas. And it, it is a challenging area to be working. And like I said, I am sometimes quite jealous of my land-based counterparts. And, and um, actually, but, but we're not we're not quite there. Yeah, we're not quite there. Oh. And thinking of land, rewilding is a word that people are using all the time. Possible in the ocean. Tell us about that. Yeah, we're um, there are lots, lots of lots of moves towards this whole idea of marine re- rewilding, and um, particularly looking at carbon storage. So the ocean is amazing at storing carbon, and you know sea sea ecosystems are highly productive. So plankton and seaweeds grow far quicker than land plants, and they suck down carbon from the atmosphere. So they're vital in our battle against climate change. And there's been a lot of talk about um, these habitats like seagrass beds and mill beds and how we can ensure that they, you know, they survive going forward, seeing you know, the seas changing, it's imperative they survive, and ideally that we increase the, the amount of habitat that's sucking down carbon dioxide. So yeah, so it is a big thing and there's lots of exciting sort of projects nationally. Uh, and we're really excited that you know, on a very small scale in Cornwall, we are soon to start a, a, an exciting new project um, funded by Sea Salt, where we're going to be working on one of our the nature reserve I mentioned, which is on the Fowl Ruin um, nature reserve on the, on the River Fowl. And uh, we, what we've got there is mudflats home to seagrass beds. And these seagrass beds uh, are dwarf seagrass, and they're quite a small kind of... Um, perhaps a bit less impressive looking than the big seagrasses you get further out to sea, but these ones trap carbon really okay. effectively. 
yeah. up to twice as as, as well as our uh, um, common seagrass. So yeah, we, we're going to be doing a really exciting study of the seagrass beds on our nature reserve, looking at how they work, looking at the water parameters, etc. And then we're going to be doing some trials to try and reseed and, and, and expand the size of that seagrass bed. If those go well, what we'd love to do is then to take that technology and use it in other estuaries in Cornwall where seagrass beds have been lost. And in the 1930s, we lost 90% of, uh, well, we lost uh, nearly all of our intertidal seagrass. And across the UK, we've lost a total of 90% of our 90%. seagrass. 90%. So there is a big potential there for re-establishing that habitat to lock down a lot more carbon more effectively than uh, our estuaries are currently doing. So, yeah. So, so doing that on nature reserve and then hopefully taking it wider. Yeah. Beyond that. That's right. That's our mm. that's our plan, and it's a big project, and this is really an early early stages. So watch this space. But have you got a sense of when you're going to start that one? It's starting this summer, and it's going to be a three year project. Great. And we are. It is a, a research project, primarily because the the technology is also new, and it's the first time that that um, it's been done in in Cornwall. Um, to our knowledge, so yeah, very exciting. Mm. And against that. Gloomy backdrop of you know the difficulties we face. That sounds like a positive thing. What else is going on in the team you're working in that's um, trying to make a difference to our oceans? Well, um, constantly behind the scenes, our marine team are working, you know, in, in many different ways at trying to influence, improve our lot for the seas. So obviously, I've already mentioned the public awareness raising, which is a massive thing. I mean, I think the sea to a lot of people the the sea in Cornwall is lovely and fantastic and um, and great and aren't we lucky? But they sort of forget we actually need to work to keep it like that, and 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 also it's out of sight, out of mind, isn't it? So you know we've abused the sea for, for centuries because people can't see the impacts very easily. So we're trying to educate people about that. You know we're also gathering data, which is going to be really useful. So our citizen science work is is really helpful um, because it's allowing us to monitor change and, and document that more effectively. Um, and you know we we've got lots of other other projects on the go. I mean, I kind of probably haven't got time to get into them all in detail, but um, yeah, long-term projects such as our um, marine strandings network where we record um, stranded marine animals and try and work out what, what's going on and look at trends. Okay, so tell us about um, that. What, what's the value then in, in recording an, an animal which has been stranded? Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly sad and it takes a, a really dedicated type of volunteer to, to do because it actually does get you down <laughs> but whenever a wild animal gets washed up on the shore dead or alive we've got a 24-hour hotline manned by volunteers that the public can ring and they then report the animal if it is alive um, our colleagues at British Divers Marine Life Rescue will be called in to, to try and rescue it but if it's dead our strandings volunteers will come down and they'll record that stranding so uh, since the project was started over 20 years ago, we've got now a really good database. And um, many of the animals that are coming in, are, if they're fresh enough, they get taken away and post-mortemed. So we've built up a really good picture of what, what th is threatening, particularly marine mammals around our coasts. And um, yeah, there's a whole host of different threats, you know, pollution, obviously disease, but we're seeing probably the greatest impact is down to entanglement in fishing gear so uh, you know uh, often that's 
um, gill nets. So these are nets that are left out by fishermen on the seabed unsupervised. And, and that's one of the most commonly used type of fishing uh, fishing method in, in, the, in Cornish waters. So yeah, we're, it's allowed us to, that you know, getting that information has been really useful. It's allowed us to raise the issue. And um, we've been doing lots of research, looking at methods that we can uh, try to reduce bycatch in, in gill nets, including our brilliant research on pingers, which has carried out, and most of it was carried out quite a few years ago now, but so, you know, that technology, these are acoustic devices that alert dolphins and porpoises. There's a net in the water. Okay. And that technology has now been used all around the world. It's, you know, really, really helping in, in, in marine conservation, which is great. So how does that and, pinger um, work then? Sorry, they... It's a small device with a battery in it that creates a sound that is audible to dolphins and porpoises, but not to fish. So it, it wow. frightens the dolphins. It tells the dolphins and porpoises that there's something there, basically gives them more chance to avoid the net but it doesn't reduce your catch of fish and it's so, been cleverly so put on the boat then no, no it's on the net it's on the so net you put them okay. at intervals along a net and when you bear in mind a gill net can be very long you know it could be a kilometer long or more and um, you have these spaced intervals along the net so you know that's been really great and that and a lot of that was driven by you know work done at Cornwall Wildlife Trust so we're very proud of that you know and we you know offshore a lot of the big fishing boats because of European laws, are using these pingers, which is making their fishing far more sustainable, which is great. We've actually currently got a bit of a um, a bit frustrating position there with the sort of more inshore areas, and there's a lot of sort of there's still a lot of um, work going into looking at how we, how you best deal it with this inshore, because you don't want to kind of exclude by having too many of these acoustic devices you don't want to exclude dolphins from certain areas like bays and areas that are important for feeding so there's still quite a lot of research going on into that but um but yeah there's um that strandings data has been really really helpful over the years at highlighting you know these problems uh, another great example was back in the 19 um 1990s and early 2000s there was a lot of dolphins coming in with broken jaws and they were able to prove that this was down to a type of fishing called um, pelagic uh, pelagic trawling that was targeting bass so they um, that fishery actually ended up getting stopped as a result of the work of our strandings volunteers so it's really vital vital so difficult work, work but actually really making yeah. a huge difference and kind of oh, at times you feel I really feel for volunteers because it is hard and it's emotionally hard seeing these dead animals because the the sort of people who want to do it obviously love animals but those sort of those wins make it worth it and yeah. we've got to keep going because um you know if someone's not doing it those deaths have all been yeah. you know wasted wasted, they, wasted. Vain. so yeah, yeah we're, we're very very grateful to those guys and, and proud of all they do and um, you know, there's and there's loads of other great stuff going on. Obviously, we've um, yeah, we've we've had the whole issue of plastic pollution has really raised. You know, re public awareness has been raised of that, which is amazing. And there's a lot of work going on um, in Cornwall to try and tackle plastic pollution. And, you know, really, um, really amazing work being carried out by these networks of volunteers all around Cornwall. And uh, one of our big um, conferences, so we have a conference every year called the Your Shore Conference. A few years back, um, a group was formed called the Cornwall Plastic Pollution Coalition, and that now represents, I think, over 40 groups in the southwest of England, right, which wow. is amazing, yeah. and they're doing incredible work 
joined up work and really trying to make a you know really doing good stuff to make a difference so yeah we're um we've got a lot going on in the ring yeah and it sounds like there's a lot to be hopeful about against a difficult backdrop i mean people who live here like like me and you you know we appreciate the sea Mm. so it's not surprising that we found that um, our biggest um tool in our battle for conservation has been the general public, the amazing people all around us, and they're really inspiring. Yeah. And you know, trying to sort of support those people, and give them, you know, give them what, what they need and the skills they need, even just sort of showing them that they can do this or they can do that, and it can make yeah. a difference, gets them started. And we're hoping, you know, that a ball is now ro- rolling, a very large ball, and it's rolling quicker. And this is what you need mm. to to sort of generate any kind of change, don't you? You need society to get behind it. Well, let's, let's talk for it. <laughs> let's talk really specifically about that. Then, if someone was listening to this and thought, actually, I want to do something, I want to make an impact in my life, what are the sort of top three things they could do or options for them? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, carbon carbon footprint is one of the massive ones, isn't it? And there's loads of advice out there on ways you can reduce your carbon impact, carbon footprint, and. Every little helps. Um, But then going more specifically, looking at marine issues, I think um, no one who lives in Cornwall is that far from from their local marine conservation group. You know, and we support this network. A lot of these groups are linked to the Wildlife Trust, which is brilliant, but a lot of them aren't, and that's great. We, we still value everything that every, every one of those volunteers does. So have a look on our website at the um, Your Shore Network of Marine Groups and get in touch with the one that's, uh, you know, the, that's closest to you. And you know, what you'll find is within those groups, there's amazing people, and there's loads of different ways that you can help there's jobs for almost everybody <laughs> and the groups don't have a formula that you know you have to do this that and this in fact every one of those groups does things slightly differently and that's all built up in time depending on um, who's who's a member and who want what people are passionate about some of those groups do amazing shore search surveys which obviously I love because I support them um, but there's also groups who do a lot who, who maybe focus a lot more on um, you know plastic pollution and tackling that which is a, another massive and just as important thing so um, yeah I would recommend people getting in touch with their local marine conservation group and finding out how they can be of assistance great we'll get the link of that into the show yeah. notes yeah last question Matt what's your favourite experience that you have in, uh, under the water uh, what's, what's the best thing you've ever seen enjoyed <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I've, I just, I've got so many and I've been really lucky and like I, I kind of I have to pinch myself, you know, several times a year that this is actually my job and I've ended up being such a fortunate person to have ended up doing this for a living. Um, yeah, like I said to you earlier, I mean, I get a big kick out of exploring new places, but just the other day I actually had my favourite ever dive. So I've been diving since I was... 17 and I've dived all around the world and I've seen impressive big wildlife underwater which is amazing but actually in Cornwall we have just as impressive marine life it's just it isn't always at the same scale but it's just as colourful and just as varied so I went out diving at Porth Kerris which is on the Lizard and this is only a couple of weeks ago I, I organised a two day diving expedition and um, 
we did our dives with our volunteers out on the manacles, that was fantastic, and then looking at seagrass. And then um, I was a bit tired in the evening and I nearly didn't go in for an extra dive, but this is like after we'd knocked off. Um, but yeah, there a couple of us said, oh, let's just go for a dive. So we swam out just off the shore and went down underwater, swam over a beautiful kelp forest. And literally within a couple of minutes of being underwater, we found a Mediterranean octopus. Wow. And like, <laughs> I mean, I had had a tip off that they'd been there. And one of the guys I was diving with had seen one there. So we kind of went to the right place. But this octopus, oh my goodness, it was, they are amazing animals, aren't they? They're really alien. And it was about a metre across. And um, the octopus was just there, just in amongst the kelp, looking up at us. We were looking at it. And uh, I just felt so privileged to have had that opportunity to have seen that in our waters. Um, we then, the octopus sort of then sort of disappeared because they're very good at that. They're masters of camouflage and just sort of zipped off into a little gully and disappeared. So we swam along a bit and we came across um, a beautiful crawfish. And I, when I was a kid growing up in Cornwall, I had heard about crawfish. These are called also called spiny lobsters. Okay. So they're a member of the lobster family and they've got these big antennae and these spiky front legs. Um, but divers um, in the sort of 60s and 70s um, and fishermen did a very good job of eradicating crawfish from Cornish waters. They were basically overfished. So when I learned how to dive in the 90s, you know, you, w- you didn't see crawfish and you didn't see crawfish ever. You know, um, we would occasionally get records of fishermen bringing them in. And I think down off sort of the far west of Cornwall, off Hale and kind of Land's End, fishermen were still catching a few crawfish, but literally a handful a year. Well, a few years ago, crawfish reappeared en masse in Cornwall. And it's just an amazing example of how the ocean can recuperate itself. Yeah. You know, all we have to do is give it space to do that. And yeah, the crawfish have now come back. Yeah, there are crawfish now all around the Cornish coast on our rock reefs and wrecks, and we're hoping they're here to stay. You know, we really need to look after them and ensure that they don't get overfished again. But that's a whole other subject. But anyway, we actually saw one. So we were diving, the same dive off the shore. We saw an octopus. We saw a beautiful, mature crawfish just walking around. Swam out a little bit longer. I ended up just sort of resting on some sand, and I was surrounded by beautiful, colourful wrasse. So rats are amazing, intelligent, colourful fish. Um, one of them was really interested in my camera and kept coming up close, so I got some fo- lovely photos of that. There's some big spider crabs as well posing. So, yeah, I was very happy with that dive. And as we were sort of heading back and I was getting cold, we were just about to get out of the water, I felt a tug on my fin and turned around and there's a massive seal right behind me. <laughs> this, is a, this is like, oh my goodness, like icing on the cake. The perfect dive. So I sat there with this, um, watching this huge male seal. He was very playful. He, um, he tugged on my fins and then sort of disappeared. And a couple of, uh, you know... 30 seconds later, he reappeared and tugged on my buddy's fins, <laughs> made him jump and then disappeared. And then we just waited and he came back and he was clearly playful, just interested in who we were and what we were doing in his in his territory. And um, not aggressive, luckily, because they are big, mm-hmm. you know, they're powerful animals, um, but just awe-inspiring. And um, I felt very, very fortunate that day that I live in Cornwall. And that you went in for the dive. <laughs> and we decided to do that extra dive. <laughs> And, um, you know, it just reminded me of how lucky we are. 
you know, not every dive is like that, obviously. You get a lot of cold, murky dives in Cornwall. I'm sure you do, yeah. And, um, but I just, yeah, I just love it. I just, mm. what thing I love about diving and rock pool and, and snorkeling is that, yeah, you literally can be surprised. You never know what you're going to find. And, uh, yeah, there's been loads of other highlights. The day we found the St. Piran's crab, that was great. Oh, yeah. It was a warm water species been... of crab, yeah, that had, again, been different. Um, absent from Cornwall for years and it, it's re-established now but yeah the day we found that was a big day there was also a um, couple of years ago where my buddy found an incredible um, this was Shannon um, who's a great photographer Shannon Moran from Falmouth she actually found a, a, a sea slug new to the UK amazing <laughs> and she found it one day and then took us there a couple of days later and it was still there so I got to see it and that was really amazing so yeah you just literally never know what's around the corner and the St. Piran's crab, are you hopeful that they'll stay? The St. Piran's crab seems to be doing really well and it's an example of a warm water species that's thriving now in our waters. And, and what, what was amazing is that it managed to make the jump from Brittany to Cornwall. So obviously they have lar their larvae drift in the plankton and for years and years the larvae has drifted around and not made it to Cornwall but then one year it did. So we had a successful batch of these little baby crabs arriving in Cornwall and they've now, you know, produced larvae themselves and we've now got these St. Perrin crabs all up and down the coast. So that must so have been that, a great that, moment that seeing a, them for the first time. Yeah, they're amazing little creatures. Yeah, yeah lovely. And, you know, a lot, like I said to you earlier, a lot of our marine wildlife is small, um, but I think just as exciting and just as impressive as some of the tropical stuff. And um, yeah, another great thing as well now is that quite affordable, you can get little underwater cameras and, and the, the ones that I use, um, you know, nearly all of my volunteers go out and buy once they've seen them in action because the, the quality of close-up photography you can get with them is amazing. And that's kind of um, that macros microscopic world, I think, is so alien and yeah. it kind of, these cameras bring it to life. And, you know, I'm gradually losing my eyesight now because I'm in <laughs> late 40s. I'm having to wear reading glasses, but I find my camera makes up for it because it's got such a good close-up. It's great. <laughs> which is really helpful. Oh, you're making me want to get into the ocean now. So. <laughs> oh, I recommend it to everyone. Mm. Yeah. Matt, thanks so much for your time and all the best for National Marine Week. Thank you. Yeah, lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Tom. And who knows what might turn up this summer. Yeah, good luck yeah. with that. <laughs> It was such a good interview with Matt and I just really enjoy hearing how passionate he is about the marine environment. I know and particularly that bit about how young he was when he got so interested in it. And it's still there now <laughs> yeah. as an adult when we go rock pooling you see it. Yeah I'll bet well I'd love to go actually actually out rock pooling with him. So Lucy let's talk now about your project the Your Shore project. Tell me what what is that all about? So the Your Shore project it's currently based in the Mounts Bay area and the Mounts Bay Marine Group has been given this opportunity to gain extra support from Cornwall Wildlife Trust in the work they're doing for marine conservation within their local community. And we've been giving young people in the Mounts Bay area a chance to connect with nature and community through different activities. So we've been doing learning to snorkel, wildlife boat safaris and other really cool coastal based activities. And it's a really brilliant opportunity for them to discover the wonders of the marine environment and learn how they can protect it. And a really exciting part of this project is the development of something called the Charter of the Sea, which is like an action plan manifesto created by the community, of what they want, their voices to promote nature recovery in their local marine environment. 
And we've already engaged with a range of stakeholders in the area, including residents, local businesses, community groups and councillors, pulling together solutions that are important to local people to protect our seas. Together, the community can take action to make a difference and it's happening. That's really positive. Let's talk a little bit um, specifically about the work with young people that you mentioned. So what, what's what been going on there? There's been all sorts. We've been working in local schools. So Mounts Bay Academy has been a big focus point because they've got not only eco reps, but they have a wildlife club after school, but also homeschool sessions with people who are outside the school system. And so they don't miss out on any opportunities. And it's been incredible. The two very different ways of doing it but they've both just interacted with it so well yeah well i'd like to hear about a little bit about each of those so wildlife club what sort of things have you been doing with those guys so wildlife club they're they inspire me they're so passionate i'm learning from them as much as they're learning from us and we'll go after school and we'll just offer our knowledge our skills and ask them what do you want to do and so we've done some really interesting things like putting wildlife cameras out in the woodlands they have and we've seen that there's foxes there and five little cats wandering around the woods. We've done like a version of the silent disco beach clean, but we've done a forest silent disco beach clean. Yeah. <laughs> and we've done bat walks. We've gone to the Beaver Trust, actually. That was a really good trip. They learnt so much on there and they've just, they're getting all these incredible experiences and opportunities. Mm purely just because they're passionate about it, but they want this as their future and you can see it and they're learning a lot. Yeah, great. And what about the children who who are home educated? What have you been doing with them? So with them, it's been focusing on getting them, because they're at home, getting them outside. Okay. So getting them to the beach, getting them in, in the sea. So we did like a five-week programme where over a few weeks we got them to do a beach clean we got them to do egg case surveys. We what was got that them... all about then? What's, this, what's the egg case? Surveys? So that's a citizen science thing that anyone can do. The shark trusts that if you see mermaid purses, which are shark egg cases, mm-hmm. you can collect them, take pictures and submit it. And it just helps collect data on what's happening with population numbers. And especially if it's been a storm and some come washed in, it's just a good way to see all like how is it affecting the population. And just getting them involved in citizen science to say, oh, look, these kind of things are out there and you can do them whenever you want. And we've done learning to snorkels and we've also done lots of wildlife boat trips. And they've seen some amazing things on the boats. They've seen seals, they've seen puffins, they've seen dolphins. Brilliant. They've it's been... a real, real expansion of opportunities. Absolutely. Yeah. And they've loved every second of it. We've enjoyed it as well. And it's to get them to do this once the project's over just to make it sustainable so then for the rest of their education and the rest of their lives they will continue to connect with nature yeah and the the learning to snorkel sessions that's not just been with that those children but you've been doing that more broadly haven't you oh yeah broadly with school homeschool and eventually it's going to be public especially in national marine week where a few events will be snorkel safaris okay so lots of opportunity and scope there and it's good fun What's your, I haven't been snorkeling for years. What's your top tip? Top tip, always go with a buddy. Yep. They keep you safe and actually it's more fun with a buddy. Make sure you've got all your kits, your goggles, your flippers. A weight belt if you know you're quite buoyant. Uh, but the main tip would be make sure your mask doesn't fog up. And the best way to do that is either use toothpaste mm-hmm. or you spit in it. You spit in it? You spit in it. 
Okay. Best way to do it. You will get weird looks, but honestly, it, it helps. Just defog your mask when you go in the water so you get the best opportunity to see everything. Brilliant. So remember um, to spit in your mask. Remember to spit in your mask. <laughs> know your route. <laughs> know your signals. Know how to be safe and just enjoy it. Brilliant. Fully immerse into it and just escape. Well, I think that's a good note on which to finish. So enjoy National Marine Week. Get involved in lots of our opportunities. Have a look at the website to find out what's going on and enjoy yourselves. There'll be loads of events out there. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>